Good, good, good. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you are with us on this beautiful fall morning. Now, it is the occasion of Halloween. This happens, you know, about every seven years or so. I think that's the way calendars work in the church, where Sunday morning is Halloween. And so I was kind of looking a little bit into the history of Halloween. I don't know if you've done this. Maybe some of you kind of know the shorthand that Halloween is just a contraction of All Hallows' Eve. This was kind of a celebration in the early church, you know, around the 8th, 9th century, where they would commemorate those who had lost their lives, particularly those who were Christian martyrs. And so in many ways, uh, since this word martyr just means witness, Halloween is kind of the perfect Sunday for us to be in this sermon series that we're in on the book of Acts. Because really the whole point of the book of Acts is Jesus commanding his disciples to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we've been talking about for, gosh, it feels like uh, two years, right? No, this is actually, this is week eight of this sermon series, and we're getting close. We're getting close. I'm preaching out of the second to last chapter, so you know we're almost there. And so if you've been with us this whole time, uh, I appreciate your perseverance. But hopefully it has been a meaningful endeavor for you as well, if you've been reading along with us. This is something that we don't do all the time in our sermon series, but uh, I think it's nice seasonally every now and then to take a book of the Bible and to kind of preach through the whole thing and spend a little bit extra time with it. Now, as I was doing a little bit more research into kind of the history of Halloween, while it kind of our name Halloween kind of comes from this 8th, 9th century tradition, uh, there's actually a longer history to Halloween. And if you've grown up in church, you're like, oh, great, this is going to be one of those sermons where we talk about how bad Halloween is. And it's not, it's not going to be one of those, rest assured. But uh, I do think it's interesting because best we can tell, Halloween evolved out of a Celtic tradition that existed and continued for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years before the birth of Jesus. And really what this kind of tradition was all about was kind of this seasonal celebration. And if you go back in time, it doesn't matter kind of what geographic region you find yourself in, uh, all people were agrarian people. They worked the land, they lived off the land, uh, they didn't have the ability to store up goods in the same way that we do now. And so there was a continual, seasonal, yearly need and dependence upon the food that the land would provide. Now, because they didn't have the same knowledge that we do in the same way that seasons operate and some of the predictability that we have about some of these things, you could imagine back then that if the land didn't produce food, you went hungry. There weren't a lot of options. You can't Amazon Prime something. You can't favor or Uber Eats something. They didn't have the type of food abundance that we have today. If the land didn't produce food, there was nowhere else to go and there was nobody to call. And so there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear around whether or not this coming year the land would give you what you needed for your group, your family, your people to survive. Now, uh, what would inevitably happen is as people became dependent upon the land, they needed to personify uh, the land in order to figure out how they could exert or attempt to exert some type of control as to whether or not the land would kind of meet their needs. And so they would create these agrarian deities that they would kind of offer sacrifices to or they would worship to in hopes that they could appease whoever, whatever was up there 
to try to sway the favor and try to coerce the land to give them what they need. Now, this seems silly to us nowadays, but I think we do this in our own types of ways. You know, when somebody says something, you're like, knock on wood. We kind of do some of these things because uh, there's a lot of uncertainty that exists in the world. There's a lot of fear and anxiety that we carry about what will happen next. It's this fear of the unknown. And so in many ways, we can actually have compassion on these people as they attempt to try to exert some type of control over their day-to-day life, trying to make sure that the land provides what they need so that they don't have to be fearful about the future. So what do they inevitably end up doing? They develop this belief system uh, centered around their new year, which was November 1st. And so on the eve before their new year on November 1st, Uh, they would create this festival and this feast. And one of the things that they would do is they would recognize that at the beginning of their new year, at the beginning of November, there would kind of be this shift in the seasons. The sun would appear in the sky less and less. The days uh, would be shorter. The nights would be longer. We're noticing this as well. We've kind of created these mechanisms around it called daylight savings time. But what we see happen is... Darkness lengthens, light decreases, and you can imagine why this would add to the anxiety and the fear that people have. Is the sun ever going to come back? Now, we know today that it does, but at that time period, there was still a lot of uncertainty and anxiety about that. In addition, it would get a lot colder when there wasn't as much sunlight. This is obvious to us today, but to them, you know, they hadn't put all of these things together in the same way. And as the The days got shorter, and the nights got longer, and it got colder, and there was less food available because the land wasn't producing during this season, they noticed that there would be more deaths. And so for them, there was something eerie. There was something evil. There was something dark about this time period. So in hopes that the new year, beginning on November 1st, would be a good year that they could trust in and have some kind of control over whether or not the land would produce food for them this coming year in this season of dark and cold and death, they would dress up as ghouls and goblins and spirits and demons and all sorts of things to try to ward off the actual evil spirits that were wrecking havoc on their world as they experienced it at that time. This is kind of where all of this begins to come from. This was this attempt to exert some type of control on the future to try to appease and mitigate the anxiety and the fear that they felt. And a couple thousand years later, we get Halloween, and so we go door to door and we ask for candy from people. (laughs) Now, I've condensed part of it, but I wanted to go back to the beginning origins of it to help us understand that kind of this inclination to want to mitigate the anxiety and the fear that we feel in our own lives isn't new. We still do this today. All of the ways that we wrestle with anxiety, all of the ways that we try to mitigate, to navigate the fear that we feel in our own lives. So for some of you, this uh, kind of manifests in this overexertion of control, whether it's with your organization, your business, with your family, with your relationships. Um, parents, we call this helicopter parenting or bulldozer parenting, depending on which model you take. It's because of your care, your love, concern for your children, as so we've named it, and your fear for what might could happen to them. We overexert control, trying to guarantee a future 
uh, that's awaiting us. We do this in all categories of our lives, our relationships. Um, oftentimes, this manifests in unhealthy ways. If you're fearful about maybe what your spouse or your significant other is doing when they're not with you, uh, you can manifest these overly controlling behaviors. Because why? Because you're scared of the future. You're scared of what might happen. There's this kind of lingering anxiety about what you feel that exists in your relationship or maybe the actions that your partner or spouse will or won't do. And so we create these efforts. Some of them are not that much more sophisticated than dressing up as ghouls and goblins to ward off the evil spirits in our lives. You see, we think that in the 21st century in Western society, we're so much smarter than people who came before us. There's kind of this uh, anachronistic snobbery that we take about people who have, have long lived, but we do the same things. We struggle with control. We struggle with fear and anxiety in our life. In fact, there have been surveys recently done that uh, say that we actually have about 15% of the control that we think we have in our life. Because of this lack of control, because of this fear, we can just take a look around our families over the last 18 months, around our society, to see all of the ways that unmitigated fear and anxiety wrecks havoc in our lives and in our world. Now, about 30 years ago, there was a, a Jewish rabbi and a therapist named Dr. Edwin um, Friedman, and he was one of the first proponents of this idea called family systems theory. Now, family systems theory, at its very basic, understands that uh, whether it's in the context of an actual family or a group of people, that the relationships, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions that exist within those persons impact and affect the other people who are connected to those persons, particularly in a family, um, relationally. And so you can study a group of people, whether it's a family, a business, a country, a society, and kind of derive some of their actions, their emotions, their thought processes, the health of that system, kind of based on the health of the individuals within the system. Parents, it's, it's similar to the ways and the reasons that you want your children to hang out with the good kids. It's because you recognize that on some level, those who we associate with impact and affect us. And so as Dr. Friedman was kind of studying the effects of kind of this family systems theory, he expanded it and applied these same ideas to his synagogue. And then from there, he began to kind of map onto those same dynamics and the ways that they would be at work in businesses and in organizations. And then he kind of expanded it and began to identify the ways that family systems theory could um, make sense of and explain the way that nation states begin to operate. And he was kind of ended up being um, someone that was brought in to help navigate relationships between the U.S. and Israel and different things a couple years ago. Now, what he noticed is that in the West, there is this myth or this faith that's placed on this idea of continual forward progress, that life is always improving, that life is always getting better. He says that there's a strong bias and belief in this idea in the West. And we see this in many ways to be true. So you look at kind of the, the growth of technology or you know, just the general level of wealth that seems to exist in the West, 
or the development of healthcare, some of these things, what you see in many ways is that things tend to be this continual linear progression of up and to the right. But what Dr. Friedman noticed was that while in some of these large categories, the West is continuing to progress forward, what isn't happening, and in fact, there's actually a regression in the emotional, the mental, the relational, the spiritual well-being of the people in the West. And he gives a lot of um, that to this idea of this chronic anxiety, this chronic fear state that seems to perpetuate. That these things that we have placed our hope and our belief in, this idea that things will always get better, um, secularism, kind of modern technology, just human progression, these things that we have placed our trust in to lead us into this golden age or golden era of humanity ultimately fail us in some of the ways that matter most. And you can see this in the world today. All the divisiveness that exists in our world, the ways that things don't always feel like they're getting better. And in fact, over the last 18, 19 months, you can make a pretty easy argument that it feels like, at least emotionally, relationally, mentally, things have gotten a whole lot worse. In fact, to use the term epidemic around this idea of anxiety and fear would not be a misuse of that term. And so what Dr. Friedman noticed was that there are kind of five characteristics to an anxious family system or an anxious you know, organizational system when you kind of apply this family theory dynamics to these groups of people. And so he noticed these five characteristics, and I want to show them to you uh, here. This is what it looks like. So the first, the first uh, in the presence of kind of this anxious system or state they all exist. They don't always operate in this perfect, vicious cycle, but they're always present and build upon and impact one another. So as I explain these to you, you can think about your family. You can think about your organization. You can think about our country. You can think about the world at large. And my guess is you will be able to identify the presence of these uh, when there is some organization or family in this anxious, fearful state. So the first is reactivity, this idea that there are snap judgments, snap comments, um, these quick responses to things. We see this in the news. I think our news media has perfectly curated the information that they share to elicit this in us. It's about these quick opinions, these short sound bites. We have taken things out of con context. We don't represent the whole story. It's just to get an emotional response quickly, and oftentimes one that's based on fear, anger, some of those things. And so you can see this. You can see this in the presence in your families in an anxious, fearful moment. Hey, quit that. Stop. You know, whatever. That was the moments when you lash out at somebody. This is what happens. The next is a hurting instinct. We begin to group together. We begin to stop critical thinking we begin to just follow what everybody else around us is doing. You see this when you look at some of the behaviors of teenagers. There's like the collective IQ goes down the num as the number of, of teenagers in the group increases. There's this hurting instinct that happens. If you're shaking your head at me, teenagers, I, trust me. Trust me, it's true. It's true, it's true, it's true. I was one of you once. The next thing that happens is there is a blame displacement. So 
we're no longer interested in getting to the root causes of why we're in this anxious, fearful state. We just want to point fingers and blame. We don't want to have conversations about what's wrong and how to fix it. We just want to attack the character of the people who we deem incorrect or at fault in these situations. Then the next is a quick fix mentality. This kind of patterns together with this blame displacement. We look for those magic silver bullets, these easy fixes, these things that don't actually get to the root cause of what's wrong, but just appease our anxiety. It's, you, you hear all these kind of bad ideas and fearful moments like, oh, we should do this. It's like, you know, if there's a storm and it's like tornado sirens are going off and, you know, everybody's a little frantic and chaotic and everybody's kind of running around crazy and someone's like, make sure that you, you know, whatever. It's like, grab the house plant. And you're like, why are we grabbing the house? Like, that doesn't make sense why this would be the, it's because we've lost our ability for critical thought. And we kind of come up with these quick ideas that aren't based in what's actually going to impact change. And then the last one is the lack of a well-differentiated leader. And a differentiated leader is someone who doesn't allow your emotions to impact their emotions. And so what we end up seeing, whether it's in a family or an organization or a nation, is that your inner turmoil impacts my inner peace and vice versa. Because you're not okay, I'm not okay. And we see this on small levels, and we see this on big levels. But when there's a lack of a well-differentiated leader, you just see this vicious cycle go round and round and round and round. The people that you look to to hopefully lead you out of these things, they're caught up in the same things that you're caught up in. And so, of course, they can't lead you to a different and better place because they're experiencing this vicious cycle in the same way that you are. And so... We can look back and think about, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, these early Celtic people dressed as ghouls and goblins running around trying to ward off evil spirits. But I think when I look at our world today and some of the comments that you see in social media, some of the ways that the news media is kind of perpetrating this idea that, you know, things are never going to get better and it's this person's fault or that group's fault, the ways that they have pit us against each other, I see a lot of people in sheets chasing after invisible imaginary ghosts. And so I wonder for us as a church, as a people who are trying to imitate the early church, what would it look like to be able to break this vicious cycle? What would it look like to stand against some of these efforts to mitigate anxiety? What if we had healthy tools, effective tools? ways that we could be a non-anxious presence in the midst of all of the fear and anxiety that exists in our world. Not just on a national level or a societal level, but your place of work. When everybody is all worked up, when everybody is all caught up in their emotions and in their fears about what's happening and all of the ways that they're trying to exert control over things that are uncontrollable, how can we be a steady, calming presence? Because it's not just about uh, the absence of anxiety. What we see happen in fearful states is that it is almost impossible to be fearful and loving. And that's the point. Many psychologists you know, have tried to name all of the different core human emotions. Many of them have kind of come back to this idea that there are just two core human emotions that drive and motivate everything that we do, everything that we think, all of the actions that we take. Fear and love. And they're at odds with each other. 
Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. The writer of some of the epistles after Jesus leaves talk about how perfect love casts out fear. This is this idea that they understood thousands of years ago that we're struggling to still understand today. And so with our time remaining, I just want to quickly walk through a story that we see at the very end of the book of Acts that kind of describes in many ways some of these same dynamics that uh, Dr. Friedman identified in an anxious state. And then we'll see what we can do in those moments to kind of get ourselves and others out of this vicious cycle. So we're going to be in the 27th chapter of the book of Acts. And so uh, up until this point, since we last talked, I think the last that we talked about was that the Apostle Paul had just been converted. He was Saul before. He was a kind of a antagonistic to the Christian faith. He persecuted all the Christian faith. He was a kind of a religious elite Jew, and he didn't like the Christian movement, so he was trying to capture and imprison all of the Christians in that first movement. Well, he has this conversion experience that we talked about, and now he has kind of taken up the mission to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to kind of the known world at that time, which was kind of the coastal cities throughout the Mediterranean. And so Paul embarks on these voyages. And sometimes he stays in these cities for weeks or months. Sometimes he's there for a year and a half. But what we're going to look at is this story uh, towards the end of the book of Acts. And up until this point, everything that have, could have gone wrong for Paul has gone wrong. He's been beaten. He's been attacked. He's been robbed. He's been imprisoned. He's been shipwrecked. Everything that you could imagine, worst case scenario, highest degree of difficulty, all of these things have happened to the Apostle Paul. And he even kind of writes about some of these things and some of the letters that he pins in the New Testament. And he talks about the way that he has tried to manage and navigate and wrestle with this fear that he feels. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about how he had a hard time controlling the fear that he had. So he has his own journey kind of navigating anxiety and fear in his own life. But, you know, we are several, several years kind of past that moment, and Paul has started to become uh, a little more in control of the anxiety and the fear that he feels. And so this is the situation that he finds himself in. He's been arrested yet again, um, but because Paul is, is a citizen of Rome, he requests that his trial be before the emperor. He sees that as kind of a strategic opportunity to advance the gospel to the highest stage and at the highest level. If he can get to Rome, the Mecca and the center of the known universe at that time, perhaps that will be the stage, the, the case, the opportunity for him to greatly disseminate the Christian message. And so he's petitioned all of the kind of the rulers in that area, the sub kind of tier rulers to allow him to go to Rome to stand before the emperor and to present his case. So he's on his way to Rome. And this is what happens. He gets on a boat in, in chapter 27, verse 9. I'll read it to you. Um, but if you've got your Bibles, pull them out. If you've got your phones, pull them out as well. Okay. So, since much time had been lost and sailing was now dangerous, because even the fast had already gone by, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I can see that the voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul is able to see into the future, and he knows, like, listen, this isn't going to work the way that we want. 
there's a kind of a seasonality to when you're able to navigate the Mediterranean waters. And he's saying, hey, now's not the right time. If we continue down this road, it's not going to work well. Now, what happens is nobody listens to him. The centurion, the soldier, the guard who's in charge of Paul, he pays more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship. As you can imagine, they don't have the same interest that Paul has. Paul's thinking about what's best for the group. These people are just trying to carry out their mission, get back to port so they can go off on another kind of journey and get paid. You know, the motivations are different between these two groups of people. And Paul's like, listen, nobody is listening to me. I'm telling you, this isn't going to work out. I can anticipate what's going to happen in the future, and we need to abandon course. So this is what it says. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought they could achieve their purpose. And so they weighed anchor and began to sail past Crete, closer to the shore. But soon a violent wind called the Northeaster rushed down from Crete. And since the ship was caught and could not be turned head on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven by running under the lee of a small island called Cadua. We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After hoisting it up, they took measures to undergird the ship, and then fearing that they would run on the Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor, and so were driven. Now, from what I know about sailing, um, they did some things to the boat. That's about all I know about sailing. I'm not really sure the adjustments that they made, but they, they did some things. Come here, y'all aren't here for nautical advice. So I didn't spend a lot of time in like, hey, what exactly did they do to the boat? But they do some things to the boat, recognizing that they're going to have to, you know, move the sails and adjust the things and the rigging, I don't know, boat terms to make sure that they're able to navigate the waters and the winds that they find themselves in. Then in verse 18, this is what happens. It says, we were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day, they begin to throw the cargo overboard. So you can imagine in this moment, and if you think back to what Dr. Friedman talks about in that vicious, anxious cycle, there's this impulse to reactivity. We're not thinking clearly anymore. We're prone to quick fixes to try to solve the problems that we find ourselves in. And so what happens in this moment when they're in the middle of the sea, these winds begin to blow, and it is not looking good. As if maybe everything will be lost, the ship will be destroyed, everybody will drown at sea. You know, there's no Coast Guard to call, so what do they do? They just start grabbing things and throwing them overboard, right? So they throw all the cargo overboard, and then on the third day, with their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Apparently, that's not good either. You need that, apparently. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and, and no small tempest raged, hit. it was a big storm, all of our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. And so what you see is they quickly move through this vicious cycle. They fear what's about to happen to them. They recognize their lack of control on the environment that they find themselves in. They're prone to quick fixes, to hurting mentality, to groupthink, to silver bullets and kind of emotionally reacting to one another. And then they get to a place of kind of just emotional despondency. They have no hope. All hope has been abandoned in this moment. This is, again, kind of what they have just navigated in this story quickly. But what Dr. Friedman says is that the solution to this vicious cycle, to this anxious state, 
to this overwhelming presence of fear and anxiety as it, run, as it runs rampant in family systems, whether it's your family, your organization, a country at large, is the insertion of a non-anxious presence. This is what has to happen. You have to introduce a new variable into the equation, a non-anxious presence, someone who isn't subject to this cycle that is going round and round and round. Now, my guess is you've experienced this in your own life. When everybody's been all worked up about something, maybe somebody comes in who wasn't there before, or someone who's been quiet watching all of this unfold comes in, he's like, hey, 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 we got to calm down. Like everybody just needs to take a deep breath, to step back, to relax a little bit. They're able to introduce some new perspective. They're differentiated from the emotions, the fears, the anxieties of the other people in the room. This is what good leaders do, whether you are leading a household, you are leading a business, or you are leading a nation. This is what good leaders do. They're differentiated. They walk in and they say, I need everybody, we're up here. I'm going to need you to take it down, down here a little bit for me. Parents, you do this with your kids, my guess is. When siblings are at it with each other or friends are at it with each other, you come in as a non-anxious presence. And you just lower the threshold of what's happening in that moment. And so this is kind of what happens in this story. But this is also what happened with Christianity and that early Celtic tradition that eventually gave rise to Halloween. Now, as Christianity spread throughout the known world, eventually it made its way to Ireland, to England, to northern France, where this kind of Halloween tradition existed. And when these Christian missionaries, these Christian witnesses were spreading this message and they came in contact with these people dressed as ghouls and goblins and gremlins trying to ward off the evil spirits, they introduced a non-anxious presence. They said, listen, here's what you need to know. Your fear of evil and death, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You see, we believe in the Son of God named Jesus who has already defeated death. Place your trust upon him that things will be okay, that God is with you and you do not have to fear. They introduced Christ into the equation that changed the dynamic that ultimately allowed them to shift this early tradition trying to ward off evil spirits into a celebration of those Christian witnesses who gave their life for the cause of the gospel. This is the shift in the evolution of that early Halloween story. And this is what we see happening with the Apostle Paul in this moment, everybody has lost their minds. And so Paul steps forward as this non-anxious presence. You see, Paul has navigated these storms before. He has navigated these hardships and difficulties. And what Paul has learned is how to introduce a non-anxious presence into his own cycle of anxiety and fear. By depending on, by trusting in God, he is able to have changed the course of his own mismanagement of emotions uncertainties and attempts to control the future and because Paul has navigated that dynamic within himself he's able to offer that same dynamic to others and so this is what we see happening in verse 21 since they had been without food for a long time Paul then stood up among them and said men you should have listened to me like all good men do I told you so you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete, and thereby avoided this damage and loss, I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life 
among you. But only the ship. And then he explains why. He said, For last night there stood by me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid. You must stand before the emperor, and indeed God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. And this is kind of the final words that Paul offers to these these people on the boat in this moment. He says, so keep up your courage, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Because of Paul's own ability to reintroduce a non-anxious presence in the person of Christ into his own life he's able to then be that non-anxious presence in the life of those around him. And as we kind of get ready to celebrate Halloween, as we kind of continue in this world that feels so fearful and anxious, as we look around us at all of the ways that our friends, our family, our society is trying to wrangle control over things that are uncontrollable, I hope that we will adopt a practice that allows us to introduce a non-anxious presence into our own life that looks a lot of different ways but oftentimes it comes in the form of silence solitude scripture and prayer spending time with God being reminded that God is in control that we can place our trust in him that we do not have to fear because God is with us and as we do that as we do that it allows us to be the type of people like Paul who can step into anxious dynamics, messed up family systems at any level, and to be that non-anxious presence and say, listen, we do not have to fear. It will all be okay. Let me pray for us. We'll bring the band back out, and uh, we'll wrap up the service. Gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that even in the midst of the storms that we feel in this life, even in the midst of the anxiety and the chaos that we navigate, God, that you're with us. That even when we struggle to manage ourselves well, when we struggle to keep our own emotions in check and our own thoughts in control, that you stand by the ready, waiting to step into our situation and to remind us of your continual presence in our lives. God, in that same way, as we begin to trust in you in greater measure, allow us to step into situations and dynamics in our own lives and offer that same presence to others. God, we're grateful for the ways that you love us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to invite the ushers to come forward as we take up our morning's offering. Um, if you were here last, last week, two, two things of note. Uh, we did a gift drive where we collected gifts for teens that needed uh, being celebrated by the birthday party project. We collected over $6,000 in gifts. And so I am so grateful for the ways that as a church we come together uh, to help those in need. Um, I'm grateful for that. And if you were here last week, you know that we forgot to pass offering baskets. So um, if you missed last week, you get another opportunity again this morning. All right, we'll invite the ushers down.